On episode 89 of The Nerd Byword, Dave and I will be addressing perhaps the greatest what-if in the history of Star Wars. We take a deep look at Colin Trevorrow's scrap script, the original idea for episode 9. So hop into your cockpit and hit the hyperdrive because the byword begins now. Welcome into another galactically great episode of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast certified to store your centuries-old kyber crystals for safekeeping. He's Dave, I'm Chris, and together we form a dyad in the forest that does not involve pining for a genocidal maniac in a loose-fitting sweater. As you may have ascertained from the opening, Dave and I will be taking an extensive look at Duel of the Fates. No, not the dope score from John Williams in The Phantom Menace, which does deserve its own episode truly but the original episode plan uh for episode nine and the finale of the sequel trilogy from writer colin trevorrow but first it's time to tear through the house looking for your switch docking station maybe that's a little self-reflective because dave brings tidings of great joy in today's what's new nerd well, it turns out that uh, the uh, Nintendo company held recently a direct, uh, one of their little presentations where they announced new stuff that they're going to be doing. And some of this stuff came absolutely out of nowhere and is actually quite um, exciting and impressive. Uh, I'm not going to like recount every single thing they announced here, but there are some really cool things we need to talk about. Uh, the first of which is probably Mario Strikers Battle League. Uh, Mario Strikers is, of course, a, a Mario-themed sports game. Strikers is focused on soccer. Uh, and this one is already coming out on June 10th. Now, this is a pretty uh, well-liked franchise. Uh, flies a little bit under the radar compared to something like Mario Kart, but still really well-liked. And uh, I've played some Mario Strikers games in the past and find this really exciting. Uh, then we have a remaster of Chrono Cross, the sort of kind of sequel to Chrono Trigger. I think the original uh, Chrono Cross released on PlayStation 1. The sucker is getting a remaster that's coming out on April 7th. And this is one of the things I love about Nintendo. When they announce something, it's basically already done. They got a sequel for Wii Sports that'll be on the Switch, and it gets the totally inventive name of Nintendo Switch Sports. Um <laughs> I will freely admit that uh, I love Wii Sports. I think it, it was just a lot of fun. It was one of the best executions of motion controls, period. So seeing that kind of make a comeback is really exciting. Um, we have Mother and Earthbound being added to the Nintendo Switch Online. So RPG fans who have been pining to replay these old classics are going to be excited. There's a new Xenoblade Chronicles coming out. Xenoblade Chronicles 3. Um which is uh, currently slated for September 2022. And I have to say, graphically, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's a really cool little announcement for Mario Kart fans. We were speculating uh, just in a recent episode about there being a new Mario Kart. And there is no Mario Kart 9 that was announced in the Nintendo Direct. However, they announced a deluxe booster course pass that is supposed to add something like 28 or 38 new courses to mario kart 8 deluxe on switch so it's basically so many new courses it might as well be a new game 
Now, that's really, really exciting. Um, and then there's this really like kind of under the radar thing that you don't expect um, that I find ex- incredibly exciting. And that is that there is a very old school uh, RPG that was released on the Super Nintendo um, that never made it actually to the West called Live I Live. And it's actually being localized for the first time ever and will hit Switch on July 22nd. You know, the, the Super Nintendo was sort of a golden age of, of you know, RPGs and action RPGs. There were so many good games on that thing, uh, and many of them never made it, uh, you know, West. And I'm, I will freely admit I have spent some time, um, you know, playing some of these games with, like, fan translation patches and stuff. And it's just really cool that there's, like, going to be an official release of this. Uh, there's a new Kirby game coming out, Kirby in the Forgotten Land. Um that looks really interesting. We're getting uh, Klonoa um, ported to the Switch. Uh, there's two Klonoa games, actually, that are going to come on July 8th. Um, and then the, the last big announcement, of course, is that we're getting another Splatoon. Splatoon 3 is slated to come out soon. So these are just some highlights, but, uh, you know, this is actually just one of the things I love about Nintendo. They just don't muck around, you know? When they announce a game... It's coming, and it's coming soon, uh, for the most part. So we're getting a whole bunch of really quality stuff on the Switch over the next year, uh, and that's just the stuff we already know about. There might be several things still coming that we don't know about. So I think Nintendo really knocked it out of the park with this one, Chris. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I've been playing um, games on, on the Xbox and the Game Pass subscription service so much so often like my switch is over here completely unused and there's so much stuff that i still have to dive into so this is makes me all the more excited like i'm literally just you know smothered in awesome content between the comics i'm reading between the games i'm playing and this just makes me all the more excited i mean like Wii sports resort specifically for me was one of my all-time favorites that sword fighting thing they probably tried to call it something else but it was lightsaber dueling um you know you're just there's this one where you're just like going up the path of this mountain just beating the crap out of everybody just whacking them it was so therapeutic and and so fun uh the boxing on there was so great i love wii sports so seeing that added on there is so so great um strikers has some somehow completely passed me by i need to check that out i'm a huge football yes the proper term of football as well fan and um for for me particularly one of my favorite games for the wii that doesn't get enough love is the is the mario baseball game uh i absolutely adored that game um oh yeah that was this great. was back this was back when i worked at walmart in college um and this is way back when you had actually demo stations you remember that those were the days um, oh, yeah. and i would spend all of my 15 minute 30 minute lunches i would scarf something down and just go play in the middle of electronics like i don't think my managers liked it a whole lot but like that's how i spent my breaks uh was just playing the 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 baseball game uh so i definitely want to check this one out um so yeah this is a lot to be excited about and and switch is really just been like a true gem uh when i finally broke down and got one last year yeah i have absolutely no regrets about that system as well now chris uh i didn't see this uh, b- bit of news coming at all but you bring tidings of uh, a great big mind yeah so this one completely caught me off guard um one of the most underrated films in my opinion in the past 15 years maybe we can call it a cult classic i'm not sure of the qualifications but that was 2010's megamind uh the film completely flew under my radar until i watched it part as a family movie night 
you know, not expecting a whole lot. And then it took me by surprise by how much I truly enjoyed it. It's got a star studded cast that includes Will Ferrell as Megamind, Tina Fey, Jonah Hill, David Cross, and Brad Pitt. Just like take that in at 2010, how much more that, uh, you know, what was happening at that time. Um, the film tells the story of Megamind, an alien supervillain who has a change of heart um, and must take up the mantle of superhero in order to save his city. Now, NBC Universal streaming platform Peacock announced this week that a sequel series is in the works titled Megamind's Guide to Defending Your City. And the synopsis reads as follows, quote, Megamind's Guide to Defending Your City is the series to f- uh, follow up to the hit movie where Megamind goes from being a supervillain and the scourge of Metro City to a superhero who's learning on the job. He'll be bringing the audience along for a ride as Megamind's trusty brain bots will be recording everything making him the world's first superhero influencer end quote i just had to axe uh my peak up subscription is a very difficult decision but you can only have so many before you're just broke uh but i may have to revisit that once this series premieres dave are you familiar with this hidden gem i actually uh i am there was sort of a uh, a brief blip of a renaissance of like animated features that weren't Disney for a little while there. Yeah, DreamWorks. Uh, most, yeah, of them, this most of them were DreamWorks. This one is absolutely a hidden gem, as was Monsters vs. Aliens, which may have been some of the hardest I laughed in one of these animated features in a long time. Uh, so if you've not seen Monsters vs. Aliens, consider that a bonus nerd commendation. That sucker was just a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, you know, seeing uh, Megamind come back, uh, is is actually quite exciting because the movie was sort of a very interesting uh, commentary on sort of superhero the superhero genre and really did something a little bit different with it and I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, you know, t- trying to take this now and make it like it seems like they're trying to do like this whole social media influencer mm-hmm. thing. Um, not not quite sure if that's the best fit. I'm interested to see how they execute it, but I think if they do it well, this could be uh, this could be a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. It's a very, um, very special film in our household. You know, um, a lot of my kids go figure being having the nerd father that they do kind of feel like they stick out like a sore thumb socially. So seeing that that arc of Megamind, who's who's the other, who's different, who's kind of picked on as a kid and doesn't really feel welcome and then like still has this redemption story it really resonates in our house. So um, I'm excited to see what happens with this development. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. All right, that wraps up nerd news for this week. But when we come back, byword big talk time, and we are dueling the fates. All right, welcome back for the main segment of this week. You know it as our byword. And this week, um, we are taking a deep dive on something that is probably the greatest what if in Star Wars history. Um, This is Duel of the Fates. It is the scrapped script from writer Colin uh, Colin Trevorrow. And this was the original plan for Episode 9. Instead, we got The Rise of Skywalker. We got um, the forced inclusion of Emperor Palpatine. We got forced inclusion of Rey into said family tree. Uh, We got 
a bunch of characters dying, but not really. LOL. It was Boom. a lot. For more of our thoughts, check back in our um, you know archives for uh, the rise of the you know what show uh, that was episode nine and our valiant attempts to fix it. So this script leaked i i want to say about a year ago dave and so we took a deep dive um something that's kind of always been on our radar so to speak and uh we we read the entire script there's a fan comic that's attached um as well and so in typical review fashion we have our likes and dislikes as always dave um you called dibs on this one but i wholeheartedly agree with your first big like yeah, so I just want to point out that uh, before we get into the likes and dislikes, I'm, I'm actually very, very fascinated with this whole what if situation with the scrapped script. And I really dove into it. I read it a couple of times through um, and the webcomic. I read that whole sucker through and then I was hunting down a leaked concept art as well, trying to find as much as possible just to help me visualize the sucker. And I think I have this this story and this movie pretty well in mind uh, if they would have followed the script to a T of what it would have felt like and looked like. And the very first thing that I think really jumps out at you is that Finn has a much clearer arc, um, not just in this movie, but an arc that really carries him through this entire sequel trilogy. <clears throat> it it kind of got cut off in Rise of Skywalker. There was not a lot of Finn, and, and what Finn was doing didn't seem to fit with the rest of what had been going on. There's also these weird hints drop that he's trying to tell Ray something, but that's never followed up on or concluded. And so Finn is just kind of present, um, but he's not really a character that has an individual arc in the rise of Skywalker. The cool thing about duel of the fates is that they lean into the notion of, um, you know, the stormtroopers and how they are, you know, basically victims and being taken from their families and conditioned and trained and their names taken away. And, and Finn leans into this and, and kind of like makes contact with other stormtroopers and recruits them. And in the end, you have like a bunch of stormtroopers basically fighting uh, on the side of the resistance. And Finn rises up really as a true leader of this resistance, bringing these people into the fold. And I absolutely love that. I know a lot of fans have been clamoring for Finn the Jedi, and I will freely admit, I think that would be incredibly cool. But within the context of this trilogy, going basically from a stormtrooper to sort of a a, a scared, a quasi-unwilling member of the Resistance to rising into a leadership position and ultimately <clears throat> helping people like him, escape the stormtrooper life is so cool and such a very very perfect arc for this character so i was deeply satisfied with what they did with finn in the script what do you think chris oh absolutely i mean um not to put the cart before the horse the door is still kind of open for that i think at the end of this with with how everything plays out there's still hints that he is force sensitive but i think Making him just Jedi, I think, is an oversimplification of, you know, what what do we do with our Star Wars heroes? We just thrust a lightsaber in their hands and we make them use telekinesis. So um, I think this is much more of a grounded kind of story arc for the character. I think it makes much more sense. I think it's more specific to his background, to his origin story. 
Um, and it really ties up a lot of loose ends um, that were kind of left out in a movie that I wholeheartedly love and go to bat for in, in The Last Jedi is kind of a meandering story for Finn in particular. But I think this does a great job of bringing it right back in to the heart of the character going from this person who starts off just trying to save himself. Like he just wants to escape uh, from someone who is very into self-preservation and saving himself and turning him into this. um, I feel like this script and all the other movies really go out of their way to avoid the word rebel or rebellion. But, um, you know, this rebel leader, this resistance leader and the a man of the people like people who share uh, have a shared experience with him and and this brainwashing and this conditioning. And then also, you know, the, the regular everyday folks, those were really, those parts of the script in, in particular were, were really um, inspiring to me. And I truly loved what they did with the character here. I, I totally agree. All right, Chris, what do you have for your first like of Duel of the Fates? I think aside from shoving Palpatine, the Palpatine of it all, not only just the character himself, but also the lineage-wise, I think, aside from that, the greatest sin for me of The Rise of Skywalker is the abject removal um, of Rose Tico, a fascinating character, one of my favorite parts of The Last Jedi. Um, Say what you will about that quote-unquote side quest that she and Finn go on, but I think the heart... I'm, I'm I'm a big character relationship type person when I come to, you know, any type of media, whether it's comics, whether it's film or shows, and so that's what I gravitate towards, and... Um, so overarching plot things aren't really something that really pops up for me or really is something that I nitpick on, um, but it's characters. And it is such a poorly telegraphed reaction to all of the awful vitriol that Kelly Marie Tran received coming out of The Last Jedi that her character is just jettisoned Um with a character for for lack of a better term that was on death's door in 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 princess leia and carrie fisher and like and so your reaction to this new and exciting and spunky character who maybe rubs people the wrong way it is a little bit of an irritant but is compelling nonetheless to just jettison her onto this base with leia is is just atrocious and so in contrast duel of the fates gives us this really cool arc for her where she's kind of like almost like a donatello if you will where she's like a tech genius she can hack into stuff um and she's like doing stuff with codes and all this stuff um there was a moment that i was like okay where you think she died but we'll talk about that later but i i really love seeing her right in the thick of it with the other three um so we kind of had a big four, and I really love that. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, there's there's obviously was a huge sort of toxic man-child backlash for some reason against the character of Rose Tico in particular uh, after The Last Jedi. And it always bothered me that uh, Disney decided to sort of uh, cave to the angry uh, mob uh, on social media and basically diminish her really almost beyond compare 
uh, when it comes to the Rise of Skywalker. So seeing her shine in this one and seeing her develop from where she started in The Last Jedi is, yes, deeply satisfying. And I think um, a, a much better direction to go. If you you know are unhappy with the way a character is portrayed in a movie as a you know Disney apparently was based on the reaction on social media then you develop that character further Mm -hmm. and 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 move them forward and you get something that's you know a little different and maybe a little more bit more palatable but removing the character completely seems just incredibly silly and so i like this i like i like her role in this uh, and for the most part i like all all the moments that she's a part of so i think uh it it just kind of works yeah for sure now, Dave, your next like is something very near and dear to your heart, and I'm excited to hear you talk about it. So I love Luke Skywalker with a red hot glowing passion, and we we've you know discussed wait, wait, wait. this. Red uh, hot glowing isn't that the side of the Sith? I, it's passion, man. And as <laughs> as we learn into Will of the Fates, you can't del- deny your anger, and you can't deny your love. So, um, yeah. So Luke Luke is a character near and dear to my heart, and I've. Uh, I don't know how to say this anymore at this point. It's been it's been kind of run to the ground. The portrayal of Luke in um in Rise in um in Last Jedi was po- problematic for me, but I came to accept that this was a, a kind of a, a natural way to go in a lot of ways. Um so, you know, I accepted that. But then when Rise of Skywalker came along, I always found that now, you know, you have this perfect setup. You know, Luke is gone. He's a Force ghost why is he not haunting Kylo Ren? You know, why is he not taunting him? He just shows up and mess with him, you know, or even just try to persuade him back to the light side. Why is he not there trying to help, you know, Ray the way Obi-Wan Kenobi tried to help him. Um, and really all we get of Luke Skywalker in, in, you know, the rise of Skywalker is very little Luke Skywalker. There's a moment where he, he lifts a ship that supposedly based on the last Jedi was useless out of the water uh, and then we have like his his voice there at the end with Palpatine, and that's it. But here you have a, a very interesting progression for Luke. I think you have Luke continuing as a Force ghost, even trying to train Rey. Uh, you know, he he also is taunting Kylo Ren. He's kind of showing up and messing with him all the time. I really really love those scenes. And even towards the end in the grand finale, when it looks like Rey is defeated and. You know, Kylo Ren is entering this temple, and then here's you know, you know, Force Ghost Luke, and I absolutely love this moment when Kylo Ren like swings his lightsaber at him, and Luke catches it in his hand and just kind of looks at him and says, "You are no Skywalker." I mean, it's just seeing that on screen would have been goosebump inducing for any Luke Skywalker fan. So I think this movie has a much deeper respect. Uh, for Luke Skywalker. And I'm not saying that The Last Jedi didn't. I'm saying that, you know, I think The Rise of Skywalker didn't. He's so wasted, especially given the fact, you know, that Carrie Fisher had passed away and you couldn't do much with Leia. I don't know why you wouldn't lean a little bit more into Luke at that point. So this script, I think, uh, does a much, much better job with Luke Skywalker. I found it deeply satisfying as a Skywalker fan. Uh, you're forgetting one scene from The Rise of Skywalker, Dave. That's where he silently nods as she, uh, as Ray just takes on his last name. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought, whatever, this, I thought this made so much more sense with, like, um, the the story that we were given and, and the character that we were given in Last Jedi. He's this grumpy old uncle 
who just messes with his nephew and like I, which is so great because i mean like we've all been to that family event that family reunion where you have that one uncle that just like won't get a grip and is always messing with you <laughs> and so like i thought this tracked um but yeah, and, and it also was like really interesting how they really kind of played with the idea of what a, fo- uh, a force ghost is in this script, in this story. So I thought that was truly fascinating. And uh, yeah, the moment you detailed where he just grabs the lightsaber is really, really cool. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's perfect across the board. I think many of the characters are actually served much, much better uh, in this movie. And I think that's something that we'll be uh, talking about more in one of your likes. So, Chris, what is your second like of Duel of the Fates? Well, we've talked a lot about the use of the animated series, uh, particularly Clone Wars and Rebels, um, when it comes to you know storytelling devices and and kind of furthering the lore and the mythos of this this universe that we love. And um, you know, it's been a also a critique that you know these films these blockbuster films are relying on supplementary material like these shows to do all the heavy lifting. Um, I'm thinking particularly, um, you know, the Clone Wars arcs of, of Mortis and in Rebels, where we have the use of, of the holocrons. And we got a little bit of a Sith holocron in, in Rise of Skywalker, but it didn't, it didn't really make any sense. But I really love that this script kind of leaned into that stuff that we got so uh, done so well, so much better in the animated series of, of you know, particularly Mortis and um, I thought that the holocron meant a whole lot more used here rather than just like, oh, this is kind of like just like an Easter egg, like what they did in, in, in The Rise of Skywalker. So I really loved kind of leaning into those storytelling devices that are used so well in the series and seeing them here in what should have been, you know, on the big screen. I thought that was one of my favorite things. Yeah, you know, Star Wars is, is way more now. Uh, than it was uh, when even the prequels came out. It has expanded in great ways. There's so much official stuff, you know, Clone Wars, Rebels, so many interesting characters that are making an out of live action and stuff like, you know, The Mandalorian, The Book of Boba Fett. We got the uh, Ahsoka series coming. And so there is a very deep lore in Star Wars. And it seems odd to me that this deep lore never really gets addressed in any of the, you know, the big live action movies that are on the big screen. Um, and so seeing it actually uh, integrated here, you are exactly right, is deeply satisfying. I, I was very happy to see stuff like Mortis, even, you know, the Darksaber popping up, which I'm not quite sure if it's just a Darksaber or D Darksaber, but it's a Darksaber. You know, all these little things that we have seen before, seen referenced before, getting woven into the story in this completely naturalistic way. Um, yeah, it totally works. All right, Dave, I'm really excited to dive into your final like because uh, it was it's multifaceted, I think. I think so, too. And I think this is really the point where we could talk about, um, you know, th- this particular script uh, ad nauseum. And it is, of course, the character of Rey. Um, the decision made in Rise of Skywalker to make Rey a Palpatine um, is, is pretty bad i think is what it comes down to i mean making her another skywalker seemed to be too obvious uh making her like ben kenobi's offspring could have been interesting to some extent um but ultimately i think the last jedi kind of set it up that she is not part of this this dynasty this lineage and you know making her you know this part of 
of the Palpatine family. And then adopting the Skywalker name is just so weird that it doesn't work, doesn't fit. So what, what does fit better? Well, in this particular movie, we see Rey in a completely different light. She is not so insecure like she seems to be in The Rise of Skywalker. She's, you know, fully formed as a character. She knows what she's doing. Uh, she's incredibly competent. I love that she takes on the Knights of Ren and, and, and defeats them good and proper with some help, admittedly. But, I mean, it's a great, great scene as written in the script. Um. I love the revelation in the end that Kylo was messing with her this whole time, that her parents were not, you know, you know, junky nobodies or something. And that the reason that they dumped her is literally because they were protecting her from Kylo. And we find that Kylo Ren killed her parents. Um, and he even at the end uh, reveals her actual last name, which is Solana, which I think, you know, Ray Solana sounds really, really cool. It's a very mm -hmm. Star Warsy kind That's of very, name. Very Star Wars. <laughs> Um, but on top of that, there's just so many neat developments with Rey in this. You know, you have this in the climax, this moment where she's blinded and she ends up fighting blindfolded, which I think is a wonderful callback to Luke's initial training in the first Star Wars movie. You know, that you don't need to rely on your eyes when you're using the Force. Uh, I thought that was very cool. I love that she's actually uh, wielding a, a dual-sided lightsaber. I thought that makes her visually interesting, especially considering that, you know, when we go back to sort of her origins, she's fighting with a staff. So a two-sided lightsaber makes really perfect sense for her and her fighting style. Um, I love that in, in the end, there is um, a definite break with the old Jedi tradition that there's a clear, this is what we did wrong kind of moment. Um, because I think this is what the sequel trilogy has been really building towards. You know, the, the, the prequel Jedis did it wrong. And Luke tried to rebuild the same thing, which was wrong. So what was wrong? And, and I think the answer of the script is simply that um, you, you can't categorize your emotions as light side or dark side. You have to embrace your anger and you have to embrace your love. You have to, you know, put the two things together and, you know, even having this moment where Ray, you know, is dying and she sees the, these, you know, the Jedi that have come before her, Luke, Yoda, uh, Obi-Wan and Yoda basically says, you taught us something. We realize our mistake. That is a clear, you know, conclusion. I think that's the best thing that I can say about this is that Ray's arc feels naturalistically a part of the larger nine movie story you know we finally are at the point where somebody figures out what the jedi did wrong and how to move forward from there and then ultimately the implication at the end is that she's going to train a new generation of jedi and that they are going to be a different kind of jedi and that leaves wonderful opportunities for the future so I, I think this is much better than just having ray standing around at the end uh and saying oh my name is skywalker you know, to to some random old lady that just pops up. What is she like? The last name police or something? <laughs> so, so yeah, th th this arc of Rey's makes perfect sense. It is so much better than Rise of Skywalker. And I also love, there's a moment where she uses force lightning uh, in this uh, script as well. But it's not like, oh my God, she uses force lightning. It must mean she's related to Palpatine. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's she's tapping a different part of her emotions. You know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You know, and and that question lingers until the climax. It's a much much better uh, arc for for Ray.
completely from top to bottom than Rise of Skywalker delivered. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, it's so much more complex. There's also a scene where she uses a mind trick on, you know, some of her friends and um and she's kind of has qualms about that and that's like a kind of a mucky situation because she wants to protect them but is it right to do that you know um and and so for me uh one of my biggest criticisms of the star wars franchise as a whole is how small it all seems um and we talked about this i think a couple weeks ago with star trek with the bumpy face uh syndrome of, of the yes. alien designs and while the character and alien designs i think are a little bit more imaginative when it comes to star wars um i think some of the storytelling and some of the settings are very small it, it makes the entire galaxy seem so small that it's only two families and and the rise of skywalker uh, was no there's no greater offender of this than the rise of skywalker there's only two families that can ever be more sensitive um and it's just absolutely frustrating and just so just to to see the box of imagination opened like this was just so much more satisfying um and 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 to just oh also a callback spoilers i guess for probably the greatest star wars content you'll ever see star wars rebels but also shouts when you talk about blindfolded uh kanan jarrus formerly caleb doom is blinded in a fight with darth maul and so he has to fight you know blinded for the rest of his life and so that was a really cool moment for me as a huge huge super fan of star wars rebels so um yeah i I truly love this was much more satisfying and i'm going to kind of amend one of my future points because this this falls in line i love that ray actually actually achieve balance you know throughout the prequels in particularly we always talk about balance of the force balance bring balance and balance and balance but the jedi is are so hypocritical in that and because they only want to ascribe to the light side of the force and completely issue and it it really just kind of is this meta thing where there are a lot of you know religious sects that deny you know so many things that are a part of you know natural human behavior and in in some cases it can cause people to lash out because they've been denied these things and i think doubling down on that from the jedi perspective in in an allegory type setting i think was a mistake and so i was i was happy to see a a shift from this that's why i always um you know have vibed with ahsoka tano because you know she was like I, I've done everything you've asked of me. I followed this path and this is how you repay me. Um, and so, like everything, basically like everything you told me was a lie. And so like, that's always fascinating to me that like, we're, we're so quick to um, jump on this, this, this good or bad. And, you know, it's funny because, obi-wan says in episode three only the sith deal in absolutes but there's also a moment that i'm excited to talk about in the book of boba fett when you get a chance to get caught up where it's it's an absolute it's an absolute and and so to see that coming from the jedi perspective is is frustrating and to so to see ray kind of flip that on its head was was truly awesome 
And I will say, I want to follow up on something you said about how small Star Wars is. When you have the same, you know, set of families and characters always popping mm -hmm. up, I totally agree that makes it small. Um, and then there's always the problem that a lot of places keep going back to the same settings, you know, like Tatooine. Tatooine. Yep. For being for being like the furthest away from the bright center of the universe, yeah. as Luke said in the original movie, yes. there's sure a lot of stuff happening on Tatooine. But at the same time, there's something going on in this script that I deeply respect. This script understands that it's not just the end of a trilogy, but the end of the entire Skywalker saga. I was, yes. I love that they're so, Coruscant for that very reason. Exactly. They go back to Coruscant. The the beacon that they try to use is in the yes. Jedi Temple. So we get to see the Jedi Temple again, only really run down after all these years. There are these moments where it kind of weaves together with the with the previous you know trilogies and that is sorely lacking in rise of skywalker rise of skywalker always felt like it was the end of a trilogy but not the end of the whole saga right and this with its small nods and callbacks feels much much more of a cloth with the entire story and feels much more like a conclusion. God, I love seeing Coruscant again mm -hmm. and the way they do it, how it's changed. And I love seeing the Jedi Temple again and the way things have changed there. I love that Leia lives through the movie, by the way. Um, if yeah. only Carrie Fisher were still with yeah. us. But, you know, the whole, the whole thing feels, you know, more like it's an actual conclusion to the whole story and for that i absolutely love it so although you know sometimes it feels a little small in star wars i think going back to the jedi temple which we've not seen since the prequels you know going back to coruscant which we've really not seen much of since the prequels i think that was incredibly smart to tie the whole thing together chris yeah absolutely and that was a point that i was going to make as well if you're going to be focusing on a, on a small handful of planets at least show the growth or the lack thereof or the regress as they did here and i thought it was masterfully done all right chris we have one more like do we not yes 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 all right let's talk all right so i this this I, I kind of, as I was reading, I just kept switching back and forth screens of like observations that I had. So this is an amalgamation of so many different things. But I will say, kind of to tie it all together, that the characters are much more fleshed out and they make so much more sense here. Um, particularly, I'll just so I'll, I'll kind of run down a bulleted list here. Kylo Ren just descending further into madness and or darkness is just so much more in line with his character than to just be this conflicted thing. He very much gives like this black sheep of the family who doesn't feel like they fit in that just goes on this delinquent spree and rather than seek redemption or anything, they're just doubling down on their past mistakes. Um, so I thought that was much that tracks so much more. Um, Chancellor Hux, the back and forth between the two of them, and it's it's funny because the the kind of like the dichotomy of Kylo Ren emulating Vader, but also, um, also oh the great thing about Kylo too is he recognizes and addresses where Vader failed. It was kind of weird for him to be emulating Vader. I was like, did nobody tell him that he turned? And so addressing that was so poignant and so important. And so uh, so back to my other point is you have Kylo emulating Vader and these great Dark Lords of the Sith. But he feels like this new generation, he can do it bigger and better and better. 
And then you have Hux emulating these four sensitive individuals like Kylo. And like he feels undermined and like muttering under his breath every time Kylo leaves a room, whether that's literally or holographically speaking. Um, and then so it's so much more fascinating. And and I would have loved to have seen Dom Hall Gleason, who acting wise was really bringing it. Um, and then they just gave him nothing to work with. Like, I'm the spy. Like, what? Um Leia in particular, and you know, this is probably even a greater what if. Who knows if we would have had enough time to film something like this with her untimely and unfortunate passing, but I thought particularly her speech um to the allies of the resistance was absolutely poignant and beautiful. And just seeing that come back full circle from where we started in a new hope with her in a hologram message was really really cool and fascinating also i also love that she pushed back on luke where you know luke was like you know i had attachments and father had attachments and it was his you know his undoing or whatever and she was like boy what are you talking about i've lost people i love and i haven't gone on a genocidal spree um so that was really fascinating and really cool to see um finally getting the knights of ren with actual substance was really cool um and then as we talked about previously ray's arc made so much more sense and she actually did balance uh the force and she was uh you know so i was like don't talk about it be about it jedi so I, I love the character work in this. You know, that's one of my calling cards. And I thought it was done very, very well here. I totally agree. Uh, and I really want to, you know, echo that we get actually much more with the Knights of Ren, which was deeply needed since they were so integral to the flashback we saw in The Force Awakens. The thing that really stood out to me the most, I think, is how much more interesting Hux is in this movie. Yes. Instead, he's not a buffoon, you know. He's 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 fascinating, you know. He's got this collection going about like old Jedi and Sith artifacts. At one point, he like tries to use the Force, you know. Like he's, he, I love it. And then Rose is like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love that moment, you know. And and it's it's kind of cool to see him get like obsessed with that a little bit because mm-hmm. he's you know trying to be the rival of Kylo Ren, and he's like, "Can I tap into this too?" And I absolutely love his end. He d- he does, you know, the seppuku samurai yes, thing, and basically yes, yes. falls on falls on a sword, which is a cool visual, and the concept art is really cool. And you know, there's a, a very neat like little Easter egg there, I think, because the lightsaber he uses to to do it purple. within the script is purple. And the last time we saw a purple lightsaber in in the in Coruscant was when you know Mace Windu died. So this, you know, the implication seems to be that that's Mace Windu's lightsaber, which I think is is just a really really cool little moment. Um. But yeah, the character work is so much more clear. There are a couple things that bugged me, but we can talk about mm-hmm. that in the in the dislikes, obviously. But overall, um, this movie didn't feel nearly as rushed. And because of that, I think the characters had some room to breathe and it worked much, much better. I, I, you know, and just one final note, like overarching before we descend into dislikes. I felt as I was reading this, like I saw this all playing in my head. It felt like a cohesive storyline of a movie. Like I could see logically, you know, and, and part of you kind know, of myself diving back into the writing realm um, yourself as a writer is like, this just makes sense. Storytelling wise, this makes sense. The arc of, I'm, I'm thinking particularly when you, when you talked about the Knights of Ren, this makes sense. Introduce them, show them how badass, show how badass they are. Um, and then they get their comeuppance. 
You know, it just makes so much more sense how the action scenes, there's a little bit of stakes. There's a lot of bit of stakes. We're at our, our, our last gasp effort. And then something comes in to swoop in and save us. I thought it was a much more cohesive story than a lot of the other stuff we've seen in Star Wars. Yeah, I'll totally agree. I, I like the script a great deal, and we can we can talk final verdict towards the end. But yeah, I think overall, I think I have a very positive impression, and it does seem like this is a first draft, even. Mm-hmm. So there would have been some changes and maybe some improvements made. So maybe some of the things that we don't like get addressed. I don't know, but I think uh, it's about time for our dislikes, Chris. Yeah, and your first one is the only one that was really glaring to me. So let's talk about it. Yeah, so this script kind of hits us over the head with this uh, completely out-of-the-left-field romance between Ray and Poe, which uh, does not work. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a Poe man's, pun intended, uh, Han and Leia. Um, and it, it just does not work at all. Their moments don't feel like there's genuine chemistry, even on the page. I think uh, the actors would have had to work really, really hard to make those scenes work. It seems also completely useless because it doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of there and, and, and doesn't fit with any of the thematic things that are happening in the movie or anything. And so ultimately, I think... Um, this could have been very easily removed from the movie and it would have made it better. Um, it might have been something that Disney just said, we want some romance in this movie, like in Empire Strikes Back or something, but it just does not work, Chris, not at all. Yeah, and as like a big antagonist or or whatever, like a big antipponent, whatever the word is, I, I don't like Raylo. I'm not a Raylo fan. I don't like girls simping after genocidal maniacs. Call me crazy. But um, also, especially this arc, um, if he kills your parents. Um, but yeah, this one just makes no sense. Like, it's very symbolic that she grabs his face and kisses him because that's how forced it was. Um, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. And it's just so weird that... It is very clear whether that it is romantic or whether it is just a deep abiding friendship that Finn and Ray have this unspeakable connection and that everybody just wants to deny apparently and separate them. So I don't I don't get it. I think I think Ray and Finn, if you want to develop a relationship, is probably has the most uh, material there. I tend to agree with that. I think their connection and their chemistry, especially mm-hmm. in The Force Awakens, was so palatable. And then the fact that the, the the rest of the movies try to keep them separated the whole time seems just like such an odd choice when you have this this spark between these two characters. Very, very weird that you wouldn't lean into that. All right, Chris, what is your first big dislike of the movie? Okay, or so the this... script for movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically, this isn't a dislike of this, but like sometimes I don't like to read what ifs because then I'm like, what if I like it better than what actually happened? And that's exactly what happened here. So it's not necessarily a critique of this story. I'm just all the more furious at the giant flaming galactic turd that we got with the rise of Skywalker. So this just underlines and gives me much more frame of reference of like why the rise of Skywalker is just that awful. You know what? I agree. Um, I would have much rather had this movie. I think, I think that's really all I can say here is this rise of Skywalker was bad, man. It was just bad. All right, Dave, you are much more inclined with like plot and, and storytelling devices like this as, as a much more experienced writer than I. So you pick up on things like this where I kind of just eschew them. Yeah, so so 
I get that they wanted to have this new force power of like, you know, sucking life force, like some kind of, you know, emo vampire or something um, that Kylo gains. But the way it's set up is that he goes in search of this ancient alien, Tor Valum, I guess is the best way to pronounce it. And Valum is like just this really old alien that's hanging out under a bunch of junk. When Kylo shows up, he teaches him some stuff, and then Kylo kills him and moves on with life. There's an implication that this is actually Darth Plagueis, the guy who trained Darth Sidious, the Emperor. Um, But it's just so useless. (laughs) I didn't understand. Like, okay, so this alien pops up. He says he's going to train Kylo, teach him new stuff. Why? What was his motivation? Why would he just randomly start teaching some dude? I don't know. Why would you teach him stuff that he can actually use to kill you? I don't know. If you're 7,000 years old and super powerful, why is it so easy to kill you? Mm. I don't know. It's like they wanted him as a plot device, but it doesn't really do anything for the story or go anywhere. Kylo could have found, Kylo could have found like a scroll or a book or something and learned this force technique and it would have had the same effect. The character of Torvalum is completely useless in the script and so easily defeated that I would question anything that guy teaches me. <laughs> like if I can kick his butt after a couple of weeks hanging out with him, something's wrong. And so I just think that whole situation did not work. They need it needed something more, right? That the if you wanted that character in there, great. But there needed to be a reason why he was willing to teach Kylo, and there needed to be a better ending to that character. Because this, as it is written, is, is the, the sore spot besides the romance between uh, Ray and Poe. This is the sore spot of the movie. This part does not work. That character does not work. Kind of like Snoke. Completely useless. <laughs> and, and I think this is just another side effect of the disease in a lot of media. You know, we see this in superhero films as well as killing off the villain. Why are you killing them off? Like, how many times in comics do we see, um, you know, villains come back? They break out of prison umpteen times. Like, if this would have been Snoke, like, th- I think it would have worked a whole lot more. We would have had some depth with it. I mean, like, we'd still would have needed a lot of work with Snoke. Why is your face so wrinkly? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it's just like a symptom. We we talked about this in great detail. You laid it out a great master plan, I think, with Darth Maul. You know, like don't kill him off the first time. First time, you know, and instead of relying on Clone Wars and Rebels to do all this masterful storytelling with this fan favorite character that you summarily axed right away. Uh, you know, you could have done a whole lot more storytelling with one central person that is much more deep rooted rather than just a bunch of mindless bots that are easily disposable. Yeah. And I think I have a fix for this, but we can talk about that in my next point, I think. Uh, what is your next dislike, Chris? Um, so it was really weird to include, um, you know, while I love the inclusion of the Knights of Ren and they were much more fleshed out, that was great. But Hataska Ren the leader of the Knights of Ren having a slash the dark saber was just a weird detail. You know, the book of Boba Fett and the Mandalorian have detailed, uh, you know, in rebels and clone wars, of course have detailed so much history surrounding this one black lightsaber, the dark saber. So this just popping up, like they think they can get away with like this Easter egg well, not really, because is this the Darksaber that we've heard about for so long, or is this just 
another black lightsaber that has absolutely no connection. So it was a weird inclusion for me. Yeah, it is a little odd. And, and you know, it's, it's there's like deep connection between the Darksaber and Mandalore, and I don't quite know uh, what the statement is here. I think it's just a visual reference and not necessarily um, very well thought out. I think there may have been some some edits in that regard too to try to make that sense or make that whole dark saber situation make more sense, Chris. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dave, your final dislike of the film uh, is is an interesting one. Okay, so we're pl- we've played this game right. Obviously, no matter what we do here, Disney wants you know Ben Solo, Kylo Ren to be redeemed at the end. The the whole thing in Rise of Skywalker did not work very well. It seems like a switch was flipped in in him, right? From one moment to the next, Leia dies, and suddenly he's like, oh crap, I've been a naughty boy. You know, he hallucinates some Han Solo, and suddenly he's a good guy again, runs mm-hmm. around in his good boy sweater. Um, and, and that did not work. Uh, but this, this is even weirder. Because you have this this moment where Ray basically has Kylo defeated, and then he starts sucking the light for, life force out of her, which means basically he's going to win this sucker, and literally, haha. Uh, and then mm. Leia contacts him through the force, and suddenly he's like, "Oh wait, me good guy!" And instead of sucking the life force out of Ray, he gives it back to her to the point where he dies, and that's the end. And that's a crappy way to try to redeem somebody. He didn't do anything redemption worthy. It's not that's not a redemption, man. He didn't do anything. At least Darth Vader picked up the Emperor and chugged the guy. You know, like that's a redemption. He did something good to try to make up for all the stuff that he did bad. And so I think Kylo's redemption here does not work. So there's two ways to fix that in my book. Number one, you don't redeem him. Which I think is a valid choice, but one Disney seems to refuse to take. The the other choice is that you you lean into Torvalum more as a villain, right? Since he's the guy who t- uh, trained the Emperor Darth Sidious, he is sort of an overarching villain. So instead of him just hanging out under some trash, maybe he was trapped for all these years. And you know, when Kylo goes and see- visits him to learn this technique, he acts. He basically releases him, and now Torvalum is it's like you know, a monkey crazy, like a monkey's paw situation. You know? Yes, Torvalum is like going across the galaxy, going crazy or something, and and Kylo is like being dragged along as his quote unquote apprentice, and then we have a much bigger kind of face off at the end. Um, that may have been a, a potential fix for that if you're so desperate to redeem Kylo Ren. But I think the way they set him up in this movie, it would be natural just not to. And I think that's I think that has to be fine, Chris. I think that's my preferred method. I, I was like riding with his arc so much, it made so much more sense. And then his mom calls his name. She didn't even go middle name. If your mom is shouting your name across the galaxy, she at least has there better to go, be a middle name. There better be a middle name included. Um Exactly. And his redemption is telling her her last name <laughs> like that's it yeah so i thought it was i i i'm very much in the camp of uh you know no redemption like this is the great tragedy and something to learn from and something to avoid completely so i think that would have been much more in line with what we got here rather than just like oh here's your name deuces yeah yeah that that part just did not work so um I don't know, man. I, I think there would have been better ways to go. Either don't redeem him or or lean more into the Torvalum of it all, and maybe you have a better better setup there for a redemption. But the, the through line does not seem like he was trying to you know, get redemption. The through line of that character is, is pretty redemption-free, I think. 
So I don't know, man. All right, uh, what is your final dislike of the movie? Okay, so watching The Rise of Skywalker for the first time, and even the second time after a year of absence, was really a strange experience because the first 20 to 30 minutes of this movie, I truly thought, I was like, oh my God, is this the best Star Wars movie I thought? I mean, I've seen like because like there's this high speed chase. It's really fun. It's really, you know, like super suspenseful. And then we get this oh shit moment where Ray uses force lightning and destroys the ship that Chewbacca's in. And like like this is really emotional moment. I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. I mean, like I love Chewie Rip, but. Like, this is real stakes for something. And then the rug is pulled out from under us, like, every 15 minutes of that movie, where it's just like, just kidding, they're not dead. That was the other ship. Uh, you know, C-3PO's got a random red arm, uh, and he's going to wipe his memory. Just kidding. He's fine. Um, and so, unfortunately, that like is a, apparently a common trope in, in this writer's room, because um there were still moments like that the jk they're not dead moments so rose has this really beautiful sacrifice moment that seemed like really full um you know almost like a gandalf type moment where you know she's falling into this chasm but she's not dead uh and then r2 gets shot with a cannon in the head but that's okay because we'll just restore him so there was still a couple of those you know this is kind of a nitpick more than a dislike because i did like the moments that rose after rose came back from the dead and and those those were pretty great moments but um so it was still just kind of a weird thing that they don't just like let somebody have a sacrifice like nobody really dies of consequence you know until you know kylo but he's the bad guy yeah, it's interesting. I think this is a choice that they made uh, in uh, Return of the Jedi initially too, because um, I know Harrison Ford has said frequently he was lobbying for his for Han Solo to die. He just wanted to be of, done you know, with it. <laughs> well, I, well, I I think I think that's definitely a part of it. But I also think Harrison Ford is not a, not a dumb man, and he understands that if you're going to sell that there are stakes in a movie mm-hmm. called Star Wars, you know, war has casualties, and sometimes main characters even don't make it. Um, but the, the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy both seem to like completely refuse to let anybody die. Um, even J.J. Abrams, I think, in The Force Awakens, the initial um, the initial story was that Poe was going to die in The Force Awakens. That he, you know, when he pops up and he's like, "Hey, I'm alive," that that whole thing wasn't going to happen. And then they just liked Oscar Isaac's performance so much they kept him around. And so, yeah, I think there's there's sometimes a sense of a lack of stakes uh, in Star Wars because they so refuse to you know, kill off anybody. I mean, blowing up Chewie would have been one heck of a choice, you know? I, I, I will say the that if they would have chosen to just kill off Poe that quickly into the film, that would have been a huge disappointment because, like, that... He didn't really have any traction whatsoever. He had some funny quip moments there with Kylo at the beginning, but then, you know, he's just gone. Uh, that would have been a waste, I think. I agree. All right, Dave, final verdict on Duel of the Fates. You read this multiple times. You read the webcomic, so you're you're really experienced with this sucker. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you the truth of the matter is I like this a whole lot better than Rise of Skywalker. It's not perfect. It has a, a lot of issues, but it feels much more cohesive as a story. It feels... Um, unapologetic about the last jedi it just moves forward mm-hmm. rather than trying to retcon everything that movie does um it it functions 
fairly well, I think, as a conclusion to the overall nine-movie saga. I, I think there's just a lot of really, really good stuff here. Anyway, I'm going to say shout-out here to Star Wars fan Andrew Weingarner, who actually uh, took the time to make the seven-part uh, free uh, webcomic adaptation of the leaked script. It was a lot of fun to kind of put more visuals to it. Uh, you know, scripts are notoriously hard to read. So between the... Um, the leaked concept art and the webcomic stuff, I got a really good sense for what was going on with this. And there's just so many vis- cool visual callbacks. You know, a lot of the a lot of the um, concept art features Ray basically wearing an outfit like Luke does all black in uh, Return of the Jedi, which is such an interesting and cool look mm-hmm. for Ray. Um, rather than just going back to her Force Awakens clothes, she gets to further develop, you know, the clothes she wears. Um, I thought that was cool. Yeah, there's just so many cool little things in here that that really work, especially for first draft. This is absolutely fantastic. And with a little bit of extra work, I think this could have been this could have been one heck of a Star Wars movie, Chris. Absolutely. I'm going I think I'm going to go A minus because of those few nitpicks with the as we say as teachers, with the with the uh, ability to make corrections. Because I think with a couple of corrections, this would have been a top notch film. I totally agree. And a much, much, much better conclusion overall and a much better follow-up to The Last Jedi. Yeah, for sure. It's just, yeah, the, the, the sucker actually works. and I really, really liked it. All right. So check out the Duel of the Fate script. Highly recommend it. If reading a script is difficult for you, as it was for me, I'm, I'm very spastic. So, you know, I was reading it in spurts, 10 pages at a time. Um then I uh, highly recommend the the webcomic uh, that Dave referenced. Um, but definitely check this out. Well worth your time. And uh, the concept art as well is absolutely gorgeous. So highly recommend that. Um, and then just be sure to share your thoughts with us at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram. But when we come back from this, our final break, we're hitting you with two more nerd commendations. Okay, we have returned for our final segment. You know it as... Dave, I love that you just lean into who you are. Yeah, well, you know, it's I'm, I'm as bad with Superman as you are with the X-Men, I guess. <laughs> so uh, my nerd commendation this week is uh, kind of very closely connected to DC Universe, Universe Infinite. Uh, the um, equivalent of Marvel's Unlimited uh, online uh, comic service where you can read a whole bunch of back issues. Once upon a time, I was a young whippersnapper. Um, and it was during the really odd, weird boom of the 1990s that I got neck deep in the comic books. And I know the 90s have a very weird, um, shall we say, reputation at this point. Uh, because of, you know, everything's extreme and everybody has pouches and armor and blah, blah, blah. We have a very particular view of what the 90s were comic book wise. But you know who actually not only survived in the 90s, but totally thrived? Superman. Man, Superman was amazing in the 90s. Fans refer to this as the triangle era. Uh, And the reason that this is called triangle era is quite simple. What they did is they had several series. It started with three, then ended up going into four uh, that came out. And all of them were interconnected, telling a continuous story. So you had Superman, Adventures of Superman, Action Comics, 
and Man of Steel. Uh, one came out every week. And so you had always every week a Superman comic. And to mark the reading order, each comic had a triangle with the year and the, a number. And that number constituted like 1993-1. So this is the first issue you need to read for 93. And 1993-2, this is the second issue. So you have a very clear reading order of how you go through these issues. This era was absolutely epic for Superman. And we get some of the coolest stuff that's ever happened to Superman. Um, the revelation of his identity to, to Lois, uh, their engagement, their wedding. Um, we get uh, the death and return in this era. Uh, it was an absolute blast. It was just so, so good. Lois became an absolute powerhouse of a character during this time period. Lex Luthor went through so many fascinating evolutions, including at one point, dying and and his brain being transplanted into a younger clone of himself and him pretending to be his own son. Um, so many cool things were going on and you have so many fantastic writers coming through uh, this era, including, you know, people like Jerry Ordway, Dan Jurgens. Um, we had Carl Kessel coming through, Roger Stern. Uh, absolutely fantastic stuff. And it's been always difficult to revisit this era. I don't have the comic books from that time period anymore myself for the simple fact that I moved to a different country and, you know, bringing hundreds of comic books with you is kind of difficult. But I finally found a way to reread them, and that is DC Universe Infinite, because in their actual wisdom, DC did something right for once. When you get into DC Universe Infinite and you search of Superman, it actually has the entire triangle era in reading order prepared for you in three reading lists. The triangle era part one, part two, and part three. And it goes all the way from, uh, it started, I think, in November of 1990, all the way to like 2000 or 2001. Over 10 years of weekly Superman comics telling one long, continuous story. It is epic. It is awesome. It'll keep you busy for weeks. If you ever read any Superman, you need to go back to the 90s and read the Triangle Era on DC Universe Infinite. It has put a smile on my face to revisit this era. It is absolutely fantastic, Chris. Oh, man. Hey, God, I got to re-up my uh, Universe Infinite subscription now because I'm, I'm totally sold. Um, especially when you say names like Roger Stern and Louise Simonson. I love Wheezy to the ends of the earth. I love her so much, and I would do anything for her. So seeing her writing The Man of Steel, that is pitch perfect for me. And then Roger Stern's uh, you know, run on Amazing Spider-Man, while very, very short, is some of the best Spider-Man you're going to read from that era. So I'm sold. I'm in. Yeah, uh, totally, man. And and if when you read it, we need to talk about it. I would totally love to do an episode where we just talk about the Triangle era. It is such a distinctive take on Superman. And and when I picture Superman and who he is, his character is completely defined by the Triangle era for me. All right, Chris, your nerd commendation for the week brings us back to what your college days, high school days. Oh, man. Okay, so the last time I fired up Halo was Halo 2. So that was high school graduation. I remember the, the final day of high school, we went to the Pizza Hut buffet, and then a bunch of the boys, we just went over to one of their houses, and we just played split-screen local multiplayer on three or four televisions. Um, he was a doctor's kid, so. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and so like 
I, I haven't played a Halo franchise uh, game since then. So Game Pass is the gift that keeps on giving, and Halo Infinite is no exception to that. So I fired this up. I played Halo for the first time in 15-plus years, and it brought me rushing right back. So I know what you're thinking. Chris, you're the anti-nostalgia guy. But the campaign, the campaign, the campaign. Dave, you know how we love a campaign in advance of multiplayer. So what I love about this campaign, and I don't really have a frame of reference because of, you know, Guardians and all these other games that I've missed out on, that if they're on Game Pass, I'm going to have to slap those down on my to-download list. But what I love about this is it's got an open-world setting once you get past the first kind of area. Um and you can go i'm a sucker for side missions uh especially ones that have you know meaning so like there are you know other marines that you have to go rescue from captivity there are um spartan cores that you have to open up to um level up your abilities and your powers um there's also this is a really cool aspect there are certain chests that have um cosmetic features for the multiplayer and then you know this this multiplayer is is everything that i remember from yesteryear and also kind of adapts like the cool stuff and innovations that i really want to enjoy on other multiplayer games there are still the frustrations of running into a squad that clearly has no other objectives on their daily basis than to sit around and play Halo. They know every nook and cranny of every map and they will just camp out there. And that's frustrating. So at that point, I just lay the controller down and get my 50 XP so I can level up just a little bit more. But for the (laughs) most part, for the most part, multiplayer is really fun. I'm a sucker for being able to customize my characters so there is every color under the sun that you can make your Spartan armor. The the armor's gorgeous. The whole game is gorgeous. It's resplendent. It's open world. It's beautiful. It's like uh, it's just one of the most beautiful games that I've ever played. Um, it also reminded me. I don't know how we missed talking about this. The new Halo series coming out on Paramount Plus uh, next month. I'm super excited for it. Looks amazing. So I I am well back into my Halo bag and it's been far too long, but I'm back, baby. Yeah, I'm really interested in playing this. I will freely admit that I was not a big Halo player when it first hit. I was uh, very much a Nintendo fanboy and kind of stuck to that for a long time. But uh, I have to say that I have uh, kind of played a little bit with the Master Chief collection and I find myself having a lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to diving into Infinite. Yeah. Um, also, I forgot how therapeutic it was to melee somebody and take them out and how funny the grunts are where they're just running around, just hurling insults at you before you just completely take them out like that. That does a lot for my mental health. <laughs> All right. That wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride. As always, we appreciate your support, your listenership. If you would be so kind as to go give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's TuneIn Radio, Amazon Podcasts, or nerdbyword.com. And, of course, you can also find us uh, on social media. So, please, you know, come find us and uh, 
bring on the discourse. We want to talk to you about, you know, stuff like, hey, how did you like the script uh, for Duel of the Fates? What is your take on it? You know, let us know what you think, what you think of the show. You can find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.